0: Now we have our scripture reading for our sermon, and it comes from Luke 2, 39-52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, And when the feast was ended as they were returning the boy jesus stayed behind in jerusalem his parents did not know it but supposing him to be in the group they went uh, in the group they went a day's journey but then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances and when they did not find him they returned to jerusalem searching for him after three days they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers listening to them asking them questions and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
1: All right. Uh, Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all again. Uh, This Sunday and next Sunday will be our last Sundays out here. We'll be worshiping indoors. Uh, So we're all looking forward (laughs) to that. Um, Thank you uh, big time to the Sunday Ops team, the leaders, uh, you know, K.R. and Hannah, obviously Pastor Harry for leading them too. Um, But right now, um, as Harry just read, we're in the series of Luke. And last week, we took a look at Mary and Joseph dedicating Jesus as an infant to God at the temple. And today, uh, it's back to back, uh, looking at Jesus at the temple again. But this time, Jesus is a little bit older. He's 12 years old. It's actually the only account we have of Jesus' childhood from the four Gospels. Luke is the only one that records this uh, boy Jesus at the temple account. And so many Bible scholars believe that Luke, being a historian, tracked Mary down for this account. And the two things we're going to take a look at today in this passage um, are, one, the value of wisdom, and then two, the significance of the temple. Those are the two things we're going to take a look at. The value of wisdom— and the significance of the temple. So first, the value of wisdom. You know, in verse 40, Luke tells us that Jesus became strong, right? Uh, He was filled with wisdom and with God's favor on him. And then at the end of our text in verse 52, it's, it's it's sandwiched. It says again that Jesus increased in wisdom, and God's favor was upon him. But what does it mean that Jesus became strong? Right. Was he like uh, I remember I was watching some YouTube video of this little kid and he was like extremely yoked, you know, and he's like lifting all sorts of weights. He can do all sorts of like physical activity. Is that what the Bible is saying, that Jesus was physically fit as a young boy? Well, I don't think so, because typically when we think of strength, we do think of physical strength. Right. When we think of strength, we think of tremendous willpower. We think of mental toughness and tremendous grit. That's what we think of when we think of someone who is strong. In the Old Testament, that was the kind of strength that was valued. So when they chose Saul as their king, it was because he was taller than his peers. It was because he was a great warrior king. King David was known for slaying lions and killing Goliath. But at very crucial points in their life, physical strength wasn't enough. Their strength in physicality wasn't enough, nor their willpower or their toughness or their grit. At crucial points in their life and in their reign, they lacked a different kind of strength to lead themselves and to lead others. What kind of strength did they lack? Well, it's the spiritual strength to lead themselves and to lead others that they lacked. So they suffered for it, and others suffered for it also. But what exactly is spiritual strength? That seems a little bit abstract. Well, verse 40 uh, tells us that spiritual strength means you are filled with wisdom and God's favor, right? Right? That's what verse 40 says, the child became strong because he was filled with wisdom and God's favor was upon him. So that's what it means to be spiritually strong, to be filled with wisdom and God's favor. So let's take a look at wisdom. If you look up wisdom in the dictionary, it's described as the ability to discern and judge properly in the world. So a wise judge is able to discern between two different positions, two different views, Two different arguments, two different cases for what is true, what is right, what is appropriate. That's what a wise judge does. You see, wisdom explores who we are as human beings, how we fit together, and how we fit in this world that we are to live in, that we are a part of. And here's what wisdom is not. Wisdom is not just about memorizing rules and slapping them onto our problems, okay? Uh, for example, you don't need wisdom to decide whether or not you should pay your taxes, okay? Uh, if you pay your taxes, you know, people don't say, wow, you're so wise. <laughs> How did you make that decision? No, that, that's that's a rule, right? That one's easy. You got to pay your taxes. But life is not always as simple. And a similar problem is never the same problem, so it takes wisdom to discern The nuances. Many times we will have to make decisions where there is no clear-cut right answer. And friends, that is where you will need to be spiritually strong, where you will need to be filled with God's wisdom and his favor. For example, we need wisdom when we're thinking about which job or career to pursue. When we're thinking about a career change, when we're thinking about where to live. We need wisdom. There's no right or wrong per se. Here's another one. Should I marry or remain single? You're going to need wisdom for that. You can't assume that one is necessarily better than the other. There might be arguments you'll hear from other people, but not one is better than the other. You're going to need wisdom. How should I go about uh, either course? How should I go about dating? If married, should we have kids? How many kids? These are not answers with clear cut answers. They're not black and white. They're not as simple as, you know, we should do our taxes. These are questions to life that we will need wisdom. Civically, how should I vote on this policy? What are the pros? What are the cons? What are the resources? What's the history tell us? What's our circumstance? You'll need wisdom. So there are many decisions in our lives that require wisdom. You see, wisdom requires us to explore deeply who we are as human beings. What were we made for? How do we interpret the brokenness in the world? How do we interpret pain and suffering in the world? Do we simply try to ignore it, avoid it? distract ourselves, and entertain ourselves from it? How do we work towards peace and justice and love and joy in our lives and with others in the world? We may be influenced to think that these are simple questions with simple answers, that one article, one interview, one post, one statistical analysis will solve it all, but wisdom, friends, is the ability to notice Holes, generalizations, inconsistencies, wrong assumptions, false or surface answers. You see, wisdom is the ability to recognize distinctions and shades of nuance where others see only absolute certainty or absolute uncertainty. And so when the scripture is describing Jesus as strong and filled with wisdom, It's describing Jesus with a spiritual ability to think deeply. Not with bias or laziness or pride. It describes Jesus who's disciplined and not impulsive. It describes Jesus with objective principles, not selfish motives. With the spiritual foresight to see that a certain attitude or path leads to a particular result. It describes Jesus with a spiritual understanding that a person's words and actions is a window to their heart and character. That's what wisdom is. But that's not all. When it comes to wisdom, the Bible goes even further. Describes wisdom as more than just insight and intellectual understanding. Because too many times we may uh, intellectually know what we should do and how we should live, but incapable or unwilling to live it out. You see, uh, the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And so one can even memorize the book of Proverbs and still lack wisdom if it doesn't affect their heart and their mind and their life. Proverbs 18, verses 19 and 20 says, Wisdom is better than gold and it is better than silver. And wisdom walks in the way of righteousness and walks in the paths of justice. You see, wisdom is just not intellectual knowledge. No, it walks. It lives out what we know. This is what Luke means when he says Jesus became strong and he was filled with wisdom. His life demonstrated his insight and spiritual understanding and depth of knowledge. But how do you get this kind of wisdom? How do you get the kind of wisdom that Jesus had in his life and and also the power to live it out? Well, the text says Jesus grew in wisdom because the favor of God was upon him. How do you get wisdom? How do you become wise? You need God's favor. The word for favor is the Greek word for grace. It's charis here. What Luke is saying is, no one can attain wisdom by themselves. It always comes through the grace of God. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it reads, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this phrase, fear of the Lord, is the motto of the entire book of Proverbs. But what does it mean to have the fear of the Lord? What does that mean? Because when we think about fear, we think about being afraid, right? Living in fear, uh, petrified, trembling. But that's not the only way that this word fear is used in Scripture. It can also mean respect. What do I mean by that? Well, um, if I were to give an analogy, if you went to go see a doctor, and the doctor is, is giving you some counsel, and you're not really taking what she's saying seriously, you're not really paying attention to her really seriously, well then, it means that you're not showing proper respect for her craft, of her wisdom. There's no fear in what's at stake. And in the same way, that's what it means to fear the Lord. It requires uh, the humility of a listening heart uh, to God's wisdom, to his truth, to his word, In other words, to become a wise person is the opposite of a proud person. So here's the irony of wisdom. You can only become wise when you realize you're not. Right? That's how wisdom works. Some of the wisest people in the world don't believe they're wise. You see? Some of the wisest people in the world understand that they need to be dependent upon God's favor and grace and wisdom more than anyone. The more you're humble, the more you depend on Christ, the more he puts his favor, favor upon you, the more you grow in wisdom. And that's what we see here in our text. It's, it's beautiful. In Jesus' youth, we see his humanity. Yeah, Jesus was God, but he was also human. So in his youth, he needed to grow in wisdom. Bible scholars call actually the humanity of Christ, the humility of Christ. Because the humility of Christ meant that Jesus humbled himself from being the eternal son of God to being a mere human. And he didn't just humble himself from a perfect glorious body to a limited body. He also humbled himself to a limited mind. You see, Jesus was willing to go from a fully divine, all knowing mind to a limited human mind. So he needed to stay in the Father's presence. He needed to continually learn and grow his human mind. And as humans, we should get this we're finite, uh, that we're limited, we're imperfect. And this should humble us, like Jesus, to seek out a greater wisdom. But of course, our sin messes this all up, puffs us up, it blinds us to our weaknesses. And so the fear of the Lord, friends, is not just a starting point, but it's a continual disposition to live in. Uh, This disposition where we are humbly dependent upon the Spirit of God And the Spirit of God connects us and what we know to how we live. Not our intelligence, not our experience, not our work ethic, not our grit, not our toughness can connect what we know to how we live, only the Spirit of God. Because wisdom is a gift of God and never an unaided human achievement. But here's the good news. God is gracious to impart this gift of wisdom, his favor, his grace upon you, if we sincerely seek it from him. And we're ready. We're ready for the changes his wisdom will bring into our lives. Then he'll give you grace. He'll give you wisdom. He'll give you favor. This brings us to the second point, uh, the significance of the temple. In our text, we see Jesus in the temple. And in the Old Testament, the temple was where God met with his people. You see, when Hebrews went to the temple, it was an acknowledgment that their God was Yahweh. Above everything and anything, they worshiped God. And so we see here Jesus worshiping God the Father. He's spending time in the temple in worship. And this tells us that Jesus if he's going to live this sinless life, if he's going to live this life of compassion and courage and sacrifice, if he's going to be victorious over sin to the point of the cross, he knows he's going to need tremendous, tremendous favor and grace from God. He's going to need to be in the presence of God always. Risen, what this means is that similarly, whatever we spend the most time doing, Whatever we spend the most time thinking about, that's our temple. That's what we worship. If we were strictly to apply this to ourselves, I know that I would be convicted of the gap between what I theoretically say is my God and my temple and what my life even would say is my God and my temple. In a word, we would all fall tremendously, tremendously short. There would be a spiritual gap. The spiritual gap is the difference in our lives between what it looks like to live in the fellowship and presence of God and what it looks like to live without his fellowship, uh, without his presence. And I think we can all attest to the different spiritual seasons we have in life that is affected by what we worship, what is consuming our thoughts, what we're spending the most time doing or thinking about. If it's comfort, whenever something inconveniences us, we'll be shaken. the spiritual gap will be huge. If it's pride, whenever someone holds us accountable, we'll be ratted. This is the spiritual power that our gods have on us. This is the spiritual power that what we worship, what we spend our time, time thinking about, what we spend our time doing has on us. They shouldn't have this kind of power but they do. So how do we get free from the spiritual power of these other gods, of these other things that, that, that affect us so deeply? In other words, how do we close that spiritual gap between what we know and what we profess and how we live? Well, here's, here's the thing. We can't close that gap. Let me explain. In 2008, uh, I went on a year-long mission trip to Southeast Asia. And during that time there, I helped out as a counselor at a church retreat. And one of the sermons at the retreat was on how the desires of our sinful nature, self, is against the desires of the Spirit of God. Right, God says serve. We say nah, I'm lazy. I'm tired. Right, God says love. We say nah, nah. I hate that person. Right, God says forgive. No, no, that person doesn't deserve my forgiveness. Right, God says be patient. It's like no, I need it now. Right? it's like, you know, God says all sorts of things. Ourself says no. Right, there is this spiritual battle, and as we're debriefing the sermon, one person asked me, "Teacher, how do we overcome our selfish desires?" And she was absolutely sincere. She wasn't a Christian. She wanted to know if it was possible, and if so, how to do it. She didn't know this, but her question stumped me. I didn't know how long I sat there thinking about this question. At some point, people started walking off to the bathroom. <laughs> they figured out this missionary doesn't have the answer, right? Others are looking through the Bible, looking for answers, um, my mind is jumping from prayer to reading the Word to reading Christian books, but I felt like I couldn't tell her that because that wasn't consistent with my experience, right? I read the Bible, I, re- I pray, I read Christian books, but I still struggle tremendously with overcoming the self. So how can I answer this question in a way that is consistent with Scripture, but also with our experiences in life? So I'm sitting there, it's probably been like five to, five to ten minutes, and I'm praying at this point, right? I'm literally praying at this point. I'm like, I've, I don't know if you've ever been in a position where you've got no answer, you don't know what to do, um, you know, and I don't know. I should have told her, I don't know. That's a good question, right? Or let me get back to you. But I'm praying at this point. And God brings to mind Romans 5. And in Romans 5, Paul is writing to a church that is struggling to overcome sin in their lives. And this is what he writes. He says, while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. God showed his love for us while we were still sinners. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so when I read this, it hit me like a lightning bolt. How do we overcome the self? How do we overcome sin? We can't. Verse 6 in Romans 5 says we're weak. Verse 8 says we're sinners. Verse 10 says we're enemies of God. Let me explain this a little bit more. Several weeks ago, Jen and I, we we had a fight. Not a fist fight, just an argument. Some of you are thinking, how big was this fight? right? You're trying to figure it out. Well, I slept on the couch, all right? That was my choice, though. (laughs) Now, if you know Jen, you know she's a free spirit, right? Uh, If Jen was a Disney character, she wouldn't be Elsa from Frozen. She'd be more like Pocahontas, right? On our first date, she asked me if I wanted to go whale watching in the Pacific Ocean. And I thought, is this this woman going to kill me? I said, no, let's get some coffee. But this is one of the reasons why I love her. It's one of the reasons why I married her. I love the fact that her spirit is so free. But I grew up playing competitive sports. If I was a minute late, I had to run laps. If I forgot to play, I ran laps again. I got berated at. I got forced to do things that I couldn't do. That's That's how I was raised. That's how I grew up. You add my engineering background to that, you can say that at times I can be a little bit overbearing. So several weeks ago, there was a short period of time where Jen uh, sort of would forget about certain plans and double-book our schedule, and I, was, and I would had to frantically reschedule. Sort of happened on back-to-back days on a stressful week, and I, and I just lost it. I was trying to communicate to her <laughs> that I didn't feel very listened to, uh, that I was angry because I felt dismissed. That didn't go well with Jen because she felt like I was overreacting And she felt condemned. I felt justified in my anger. She felt justified in hers. Now, as a pastor, I read the Bible for a living, right? So I'm trying to read the Bible and pray, and this is really hard to do when you're really angry at your wife. (laughs) So, for your sake, I've got to figure this out. I'm asking God to tell me, like, was I wrong? (laughs) Where was I wrong? And he revealed to me that I might have had a right to be angry, but I didn't have a right to lose my anger. God was able to give me wisdom in that moment, to give me a distinction, to show me the spiritual gap. On top of that, he reminded me that I'm always do- double booking him, right? Devotions is on my counter at 8 a.m. He's like, Where are you at? <laughs> showing up a little late again. He's kind and gracious to us all the time. We don't deserve it. We can never earn it. But he's always there, waiting to spend time with us. He doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't condemn us. Friends, it's all grace. Because like Romans 5 says, we were weak, we were sinners, we were God's enemies, and still often, we are. (laughs) Oh man, I got no words right now, (laughs) but uh, good catch. (laughs) And if we get that it's all by His grace that we deserve or that we can stand in His presence, if we really get that, if we really get that here, if I got it here, then the more important thing was to show that kind of grace to Jen. To find a way wisely, humbly, with God's favor, to figure out a way to show grace. You see, in that moment, I did not will myself to forgive her. There was no way I could. I was angry. I didn't have enough love within myself. In the same chapter in Romans 5, it says, We have been justified by faith, faith in this grace we stand because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us In other words in that moment I was weak I was sinning I was an enemy of God but by God's grace his love was poured into my heart So I didn't overcome that moment God's love overcame me because God's love was poured into my heart and I could see his work I could feel his work spiritually softening me you know comparing my sin Jensen to God's holiness convicted me to confess again my sins to God and my sins to Jen it was able to redirect my heart with his love refocus me again on his mission what is his mission what is our mission it's the grace of God does this mean that Jen and I are never going to fight again of course not that we're never going to struggle with our differences or conflict again. No. But friends, that's how we'll overcome. Only by God's love being poured into our heart. It's on that grace, as Romans 5 says, we stand. Let me end uh, with this. Here's the gospel from our text, friends. Friends. You and I, we're walking contradictions. It's okay. You can own it. We say we believe and worship God, but our lives will show otherwise. We're in other temples with other gods. But friends, the gospel says Christ has died for you. Do you see that? Do you get it here? Christ gave it all up for you. You see, here is the irony of ironies because Jesus was wise. He was the one who had God's favor upon him. But all of that didn't matter compared to you. Now, some might call Jesus a fool. Some did call Jesus a fool. But no, he did the wisest thing anyone could ever do. Through his death, he brought in a supernatural grace and forgiveness into the world. On the cross, he has brought in the only certain hope we have, the resurrection. Friends, this love is so strong that in Ephesians 2, Harry read it in the membership uh, explanation. strong that when he comes into our heart and overcomes our presence we become the temple of God can you believe that you are not the temple of God because you are holy you are only the temple of God because God makes you holy that doesn't mean that you will be holy but that's how powerful the spiritual reality of God's holiness is. He carries you. Friends, may this love, this gospel make us humble. May it make us wise. May it be poured into our hearts like cement into a foundation of a building. Let's pray gracious God, we come before you and as we follow uh, the gospel of Luke and Jesus' life, Father, we see what it means to be truly wise. We see what it means to be truly strong. We see what it means to truly have your favor upon us. The world will paint different pictures of strength, different pictures of envy and glory, status and favor. But we know all that is sifting sand. And only gospel, only the grace, only what Jesus has done on the cross can give us the true joy that we're looking for, the true rest that we're anxiously desperate for, and the true security that can be never taken away, and the true life that the resurrection brings out of death. But Father, we cannot overcome ourselves to trust in these things, to be united in these things, for we are weak. We are your enemies. And yet, you can pour your love into our hearts and win us over. And we need that victory to come. Every single moment, every single day, every single week, every single season in our life as we see Jesus and how he was humbly dependent and close to you throughout his days. So Father, would you search our hearts? Would you draw us close to you? Would you make this church a humble church, a wise church, a church where your favor is upon us, a church we will always declare that we are weak, but you are strong, that we are broken, but you are healing us. We are lost, but you have found us, and you are using us for your glory, and you are bringing us home. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.